Merkel Media. I guess it's time to go back in time. Are you telling me you built a time machine out of a DeLorean? Time is but a stubborn illusion. I have a lot of memories of the past. People are time traveling within themselves. Time travel is possible. This was all circulating around the base that a giant had been killed, but no one was supposed to talk about it. I saw three long bony fingers reach up underneath the door, curl up to grab it, and then disappear. When he came over to me, dude, he slithered over to me. And this giant comes out of the cave and they're all frozen. And he starts running and firing at this giant. But the giant moves, he's got a spear in one hand and he's running really fast and spears Dan and holds him up like this. Somebody else, shoot him in the face, shoot him in the face. They basically decapitate him. Got closer, got closer, got closer. When he got about 15 yards away from me, I raised that 12 gauge and I blowed his head off. I feel something pulling at my leg. And I look over and there are two small gray entities pulling at me. And they're literally, I'm getting pulled off the bed. I reached my hand into this bush and I touch air. Couldn't breathe and I couldn't move because I know I'm seeing a monster. Okay, I'll reload it. Yep. Welcome to the show, everybody. You're listening to The Confessionals. I am your host, Tony Merkel. Thank you for being here. If you've had an encounter or a story you'd like to share with me on the show, go ahead and shoot me an email. My email address is theconfessionalspodcast at gmail.com. That's theconfessionalspodcast at gmail.com. Or go to the website, theconfessionalspodcast.com, hit the connection section, and you can reach me that way as well. Either way works for me, just get a hold of me. Before we get into our Art Bell iTunes five-star ratings and reviews, I want to remind everybody that we had to take down our YouTube channel. So if you were subscribed to the YouTube channel and we had about 3,500 people subscribed, you're no longer subscribed. So go to youtube.com, look up the confessionals, and hit subscribe. We're rebuilding the channel, my friends, one subscriber at a time. This week, we have James coming on, and James actually spent about two years of his life getting to know and getting into the mind of a serial killer, a very famous serial killer by the name of John Wayne Gacy. James comes on and shares his experiences with John while John was alive, and then also shares John's odd request right before he died to James that led to John haunting James. So let's get into it right now. Okay, today we have James on the show. And James, how you doing, man? Doing pretty good. How are you doing? Good, man. So you have a different experience, man. Like when I remember when you emailed me, I just sat there and was just like, huh. Because <laughs> it's just it's just different, man. Uh you you spent time with somebody that was on death row and then you saw them after they were uh 
executed. And if you could, before we you know go into the conversation about this, just tell the audience exactly how this all unfolded and what happened. Okay, it started uh, when I was an undergrad. I was actually going to school in Kentucky, working on my criminal justice degree. And I had uh, had an interest in uh, serial homicide and serial uh, killer research, working on papers. And I knew that I was going to go to grad school. So what I did was after one night we were uh, a bunch of guys were watching a movie, and it was actually a movie called To Catch a Killer, and it was on WGN, and it was the movie about John Gacy. And uh, after the movie, I just had a bunch of questions, and that night on WGN Chicago TV, they showed a response from Gacy, and they showed his mailing address. So I took time to write the address down, and a couple of days later, I actually wrote to Gacy, and then about a week later, I got a response, and he said, hey, you, you seem to know everything about my case. There's a lot you don't know. Why don't you come up to visit me, and I'll show you everything, the, the truth about my case. So with saying that, I, I kind of debated back and forth, back and forth, and uh, finally decided that I was going to go visit. I called uh, the Department of Corrections in Springfield to make sure that there was no problems with me visiting. And they said, no, you know, you're doing this academically based. There shouldn't be any issues. So I sent him a letter back and said, yeah, I guess I'll visit. And this is um, the time that I wanted to visit. He wrote me back. He said, sure. And he said, come on. So that's what I did. I um, you know, filled out the necessary paperwork, uh, took the drive to Menard, Illinois, and uh, checked in that morning, went through the security process. And within an hour, um, you know, checking in, I'm on death row. And uh, the one thing that was so uh, just vivid about that whole experience was I remember checking in and signing in on the roster. And uh, I hear this man yelling and he's yelling at the guards. And uh, he's waiting in this this waiting area because the guards were locked away from the visitors on the death row visitation side. And this man steps out and it's this little you know, heavy set guy, uh, real northern accent, just yelling obscenities, absurdities, just vulgar sort of stuff. And come to find out that's who I was set to visit. It was John Wayne Gacy. Jeez. So, uh, you know, uh, I signed in and they unlocked the barrier door between them and the visiting room. And I go in and sit down and we start talking. And uh, that was in 1992. And I visited him up until 1994. Um, I visited him, my last visit with him was April 1st of 1994. So we visited over a two year period, had about 80 plus hours with him of just talking with him about the case and, uh, you know, uh, among other things, baseball and other things, politics. Uh, but it was one of those experiences that was really weird because I, I was telling someone the other day that I can remember as a child growing up in the boot hill of Missouri sitting down in December of 78 and watching the television news with my dad and seeing when this guy got arrested. Because I remember them carrying the bags out because they displayed it on the channel. It was on WSIL, WSIL News out of Harrisburg, uh, Illinois. And I remember them. And I remember asking my dad, what's going on? You know, my dad was trying to shelter me. And he just said, you know, there's some, there's some really bad people in this world. And years later, I never thought that I'd get a chance to to meet this guy face to face. And I did, you know, for two years. And it was one of those things that um, I really never knew what to expect when I would go visit because 
he was one of those guys who uh, never had the ability to tell the truth completely. And, you know, even when asking him questions, it was all this distorted sort of back and forth about how innocent he was. And even when you would bring up the amount of uh, bodies that were found on his house site, he was like, well, somebody else was responsible for him. I knew a little bit, but I wasn't responsible. And it was just unbelievable that someone could actually, I think, make their mind believe that they didn't have anything to do with it. And, um, it was one of those things where uh, now I see it, but every time that I would go and come away, it was like a little piece of me was like just eaten away, eaten away. And I even think that my parents realized that even though they were in Missouri and I was in Kentucky going to school and then eventually going to grad school in Alabama. Um, my mother said something that was, was so true to even this day. She said, garbage in, garbage out. And and I really believe that. I believe that that exposure to this man sort of started just eating away at me because we're talking about nothing but pure evil. And we're talking about going to a location that's filled with nothing but hostility and horror and evil of many men incarcerated on death row. And uh, it was something that, you know, I don't, I, I don't think that very many people get to experience that. But I think after a while, it initially took its toll on me. Because this man absolutely had no respect or appreciation for human life whatsoever. None. And it was obvious just by the way he talked and the why he would make fun and make fun of the victims that were found at his location. And then he would always try to turn it into a sort of a, a sexually related vulgar talk. And that's what he always wanted to get to. It was like he, he, in a sense, thought that he was still living like he did when he was on the streets of Chicago. He just thought that he ran the show, and he thought that he had control over everyone. And I think that that was the case. And when I talked to some other people that had visited him in the past or when I've seen books that were put out about him, it seems like he was still trying to maintain control over everything that he did. And, and let me say this. The, the first time that I met him, it was one of those things where I didn't really know how to react once I sat down. You know, after I mentioned previously about him cursing and everything— but he wanted to uh, sit down and talk, and he's like, I've got all this proof that I'm innocent. And uh, then he started just sort of, I guess, um, messing with, with me, if you will. He said, you know who I am? I said, yeah, you're John Gacy. He goes, yeah. He goes, you see this pencil I've got? He said, do you know I could take this pencil and stab you in the eye and kill you before the guards got to you? He goes, that's how infamous they think I am. And uh, all the stuff that I'd read about research in regards to this, because I prepared myself for that, uh, when I went in and sat down, you know, and he started saying this, I was like, I can't let this guy, you know, act like he's got the best of me. So what I did is after he said that, I asked him, I said, what do you have to, what do you have to show me? And what I did was when he got through saying, I pulled my chair next to him. And when I sat next to him, he stopped all that nonsense. He quit trying to act like he was a big bad guy. Because in a sense, I'd called him out. And that's the thing that uh, people don't realize. And, and not all prisons are the same. But whenever I went to see him on death row in Menard, um, it was just a visiting room with one of those old 70s style table, you know, sitting in the corner that you would see in these, uh, you know, old pictures. Yeah. And uh, it had like a, a metal uh, old vegetable can that they used as an ashtray. And he came in and he had handcuffs on in front of him. And there was a, fish eye camera mounted on the wall that probably didn't even work. 
And that's the limit to security. You were literally walked walked away from the security guards. Uh, And I think that he played on that. I think that he played on people's uh, emotions and because of his notoriety. And it's really sad because uh, about a year into the visits, I I would sometimes take a a friend with me to to make notes of our visits. And um, on one visit, there was a guy there that had driven all the way down from West Virginia to basically Southern Illinois. And he was waiting that morning. And when we checked in, he goes, you know, they asked us who were there to visit. And we checked in first. And the guy behind us said, I'm here to see John Gacy, too. So what he had done is he had booked a double booked a visit. And we went in. And uh, we went in. He goes, I hope you didn't mind, but I asked this guy to come. And it was just so disturbing because this was a grown man who was sitting there. And he was like just holding on every word that this man said. And it appeared that John Gacy had become a mentor, almost in a sense, to this grown guy. Wow. And it was just like, it, it was so disturbing. And man, I don't even know how to explain it, but it was just, me and my friend talked about it afterwards and I was like, can you believe that, that he's, he was, the, the guy was holding on every word that he said. It was like he was looking at a superstar and it was just so scary, you know, just one of the things like, how can someone have that much control over someone? And, uh, you know, that that's the kind of visits, you know, that I remember. Um, it's one of those things where he just continually tried to control everything and always tried to sort of circumvent everything and go back to a sexual, a homosexual related uh, sex, you know, basis and talk about his lifestyle and what he believed and all like that and how everybody should believe like he did and, you know, just things like that. And, um, I noticed towards the end that's that things around me started, I guess, seeming uh, less and less important. And it got to the point where I became desensitized to everything. You know how you'd see something horrible on the news and I would just look at it and just turn the channel. And it was just like, I, I can't do this. It, this this sort of my I guess being in contact with this man has somehow started changing the way I feel about everything around me, and it was really scary. And it was one of those things that I, I knew that you know this was going to come to an end. It had to. And uh, you know, at any time you got questions, please ask because it, I know it's sort of. Uh, for the people who don't know how that sort of uh, process works, but it was just one of those things that uh, from 92 through 94, like I said, I, I visited him all the way through. And uh, my my last visit was April 1st, 1994. And the last time that I spoke to him was on April 10th. He called me uh, that night and said, hey, it looks like they're still going to go through with this thing, meaning the execution. I knew it was. I said, yeah. And he says, you know, if you want to come up, you're welcome to come up. And I said, John, I really have no interest in seeing you die. And uh, I guess about a couple of days after that, I got a letter from him. And then that was the last of our contact uh, after that uh, person-to-person visit on, May, or on April 1st of 94. Wow. Yeah, I mean, because he, he died almost a month, I think it was a month exactly to the day that he called you to invite you up, right? I mean, he died, uh, I think it was May, May 10th or 11th or something like that. Yeah, May 10th was uh, his execution date, and the last time we, we spoke on the phone on, on April 10th. So, okay. yeah, that was the last contact, uh, literally a month later. Wow. And so he, 
I'm assuming, I don't know a ton about him. I remember reading about him a little bit once you emailed me. Uh, he, he murdered, what, over like 30 people, and it was all men or boys. So I'm assuming he was having, I guess, sexual relationships with them and then killing them, right? Correct. He, did. he killed 33 young men and boys in the Chicago area. Um, and then on some occasions, which is really disturbing, is what he, he would pull what he called doubles night, and then he would kill two guys in one night. Uh, but generally he would pick them up and ask them if they wanted to party. And then that always led to, you know, sex. And then eventually, um, he would kill them. And what he did was he did this thing called a rope trick. And, uh, he would somehow persuade these guys to put a rope around their neck. And he, he would always say, you know, um, I do uh, clown work. I'm a, I do for charity work. I dress up as a clown and I, uh, uh, work with kids in hospitals, and uh, once the people put uh, the rope around their neck, he would also, in a sense, persuade them to put on the handcuffs. And uh, when they did that, uh, he would put the handcuffs on first and say, hey, listen, you know, uh, this is really easy. And then he would get out of the handcuffs, and the the boys and men would put the handcuffs on, and then they would say, I can't get out. And he goes, you can't get out because the trick is you have to have the key. And then after that, he would usually, um, you know, choke him to death. And depending on how he felt at the time, he would either uh, get in the process of uh, burying the body in his crawl space, or he would, and once the crawl space become full, what he did was he started dumping the bodies in the Des Plaines River. Uh, but he, it was all premeditated because what he would do is he would have some of his workers dig um uh, if you, will, if you will, graves in his crawl space prior to the, him killing someone. So he knew in advance that he was going to kill somebody. Who? He had the graves pre-dug. Who were his workers? It was he, he actually had a construction business called PDM, Painting, Decorating, and Maintenance. And uh, his workers were uh, young men and boys that worked around the Chicago area. And then some of the people that he had met during the process, uh, some of the guys... Uh, that were listed uh, in in the true crime books. Actually, their names were changed. Uh, you know, he he brought it out at once he went to trial that some of these guys were also involved in the in the killings uh, that helped him transport and stuff like that. But you know, these guys were eventually cleared. And when I was in the process of doing my my master's research, I talked to William Conkle, who was the prosecutor on the case, and then I talked to. Uh, Mr. Joe Kozak, he's passed since then. And, you know, they cleared these people. They said they were not involved in these crimes like he said they were. But, yeah, he, he basically was running his own construction business with men that he knew and boys that he knew. And the way that he was able to get these guys to work for him was that he was paying them higher than the normal, you know, minimum wage at the time. And the sad thing is that some of his employees even disappeared and ended up in his crawl space. Wow. So, I mean, basically, it was one of those situations where this guy's paying me good money, so I'm not going to ask questions as to why I'm digging holes in his crawl space. I'm just going to do it. Exactly. And that's what they did. They said they were getting paid well. And that's how he eventually got his last victim, uh, the young man. He met him in a uh, pharmacy, and uh, he was in there basically saying, you know, I start my people off at $5 an hour. And when you think about it, in 1978 in Chicago, $5 an hour for a kid is a lot of money. Oh, yeah. You know, in an hour, and this kid talked to him, and um, the kid ended up going home with him, and he killed that kid that night. Um, and um, it was one; of the, it was actually one of the uh, things that 
got the Des Plaines police to actually start focusing on him and basically surveilled him. Uh, and they didn't do that before because generally at that time, runaways were sort of like, you know, you had to wait so many hours before they would actually take it seriously. And the last victim, when his parents came in, they went to the police station. They said, you know, this is not right. And they're like, the police were like, what makes your child different than any others? And basically, they're like, you know, uh, the mother said, tonight's my birthday. And he would never miss my birthday. He's not a runaway. Something's happened to him. And that's when the police started, like, you know, taking this seriously. This man did this for so many years, which is just unbelievable. It would never happen in today's society, I don't think so, with forensics and everything that we have in our hand. But during that time, he was allowed to get get away with it because he was focused on people, runaways, and people that were, you know, prostituting and things like that. And there was just not a lot of emphasis placed on it. Wow. So was it that that situation where the boy went missing on mom's birthday that kind of led to the break in the case? Yes, sir. That's what happened. They they knew that, you know, this this was a good kid. He was in high school. He had never caused any problems before. He was, you know, good grades, had a girlfriend. Um, it was just not something that he was known to do. He never ran away. And that's what the parents sort of let the police officers know. And Des Plaines is one of those, you know, suburbs outside of Chicago. And uh, it was where the the... They started going, and I think the, the the head detective at the time, you know, he had a son that was very similar to the young man's age, and he believed the family. And then what they started doing is they started doing a background check on Gacy and uh, realized before long that he had gotten in trouble in Iowa. And when they started pulling records, they realized that he'd went to prison for sodomy on a minor. And... Uh, you know, I think whenever he was convicted in Iowa, and it just so happened that he was convicted in Iowa uh, on a young man that had worked for him in the restaurant that he was running, um, he got a 10-year sentence for sodomy on a minor and ended up doing about 16, 18 months in prison and was released. And then when he was released to Chicago, he lived with his mother, and uh, that's when he started his construction business. Now, the one thing that sort of uh, has been his defense while he was living is that not every person that went home with him or every person that he picked up, he murdered. And that is true. But there are so few of those compared to the 33 others that he did kill. What was the distinguishing factor for that, though? Did he ever give a reason why he didn't murder some people? Uh, Said that he felt sorry for them, had bad luck stories. Uh, And then one, uh, there were a couple of young men that he brutally tortured. Uh, over the course of picking them up night, and you know uh, the young man actually when the young men were used um, to testify in the trial and the young man it was just so broke at that time as far as mentally that they couldn't rely rely on him as a witness and then there was another young man that he picked up and um, the young man basically went to the police and they said you know they really didn't believe him is, is his story. And he started his own surveillance and found out who he was and then ended up, you know, getting charges brought against him. And, um, the guy re- the, just initially settles out of court for $3,000, which, you know, when he was arrested, that comes into play during the trial. And it was just like, this guy was always one step ahead of everybody. He was getting away with it. And because I think that guy settled for $3,000, you know, 
there wasn't much credibility to him. And that man, he horribly tortured. Just, um, you know, and, and I know your show, we, you, you, you uh, want to keep it clean and everything, but he, he sodomized this, this guy with a fire poker. Wow. And then dumped him out, and he used chloroform on him the night before, and he'd used so much chloroform on the guy's face, the guy's face looked like it had been burned, you know, like second or third degree burns. Yeah. Just horrible. So he tortures this guy over the course of multiple days. Uh, did he have this guy in captivity and then had the guy get away? He actually just, it was over the course of a night. He, he picked him okay. up, torched him over the course of the night. Uh, the, you know, the whole um, deviant sex sort of thing that he did to him. And then uh, basically he used chloroform to knock the guys out. And then he not, he dumped the guy in a uh, park in Chicago at the foot of a statue. And he was naked. The, the guy passed out probably after going through all that abuse and with the chloroform woke up. Um, and you know, the guy immediately went to the police, but the police really didn't take him seriously. Did he think the guy was just going to die? Is that why he just dumped him there or, or what? I mean, they see, it seems like it goes against his routine. I know. And that was a couple of times he did that. Um, I don't know what he was thinking. You know, he, I guess he thought the guy wouldn't say anything. I guess he thought that the guy was scared of him. And, you know, uh, the guy wrote a book and said that, I believe in the book, he said that, you know, if you say anything to the police, I'll come back and kill you. Because uh, I think in, in both instances where a couple of guys were released, he looked in their wallets and seen their driver's license or identification. And he says, I know where you live at, that sort of thing. Uh, but that guy was so severely tortured. I think he's like, wow. you know, it don't matter at this point. That's pretty intense, man. That's pretty intense. And I'm seeing here, I'm looking at his Wikipedia page. It looks like, so he started doing these murders for, in 1972 and through 1978. And it looks like he was married from 1972 to 76. So four years of the six years, he was actually married to somebody. How'd that whole thing work out? He was actually married twice. He was actually married whenever he, after he graduated high school, and met a young lady uh, who was from Iowa and her, her, her father owned a, chain of well-known restaurants and i'm not gonna mention them um and he married her and um whenever he was convicted on sodomy the day that he was convicted she divorced him so he went to prison and then when he got out of prison he uh over the course of dating after he was released he met up with a former childhood or you know high school girlfriend and she had two little girls and he basically adopted them and became their stepdad and, you know, cared for them. But uh, it got to the point where he started bringing young boys home uh, while he was married. And I think it's even been quoted that his wife said, you know, uh, she could see him bringing home teenage boys. And he had things set up in his garage, like a mattress and stuff like that. And then uh, his, his wife reported uh, I think it was in 1976, or it was right before they got divorced. Um, on Mother's Day, he told her, he says, this will be the last time that we have any sort of sexual relation because I feel like I'm going the other way. And that led to her eventually, you know, moving out and taking the girls with him. And that's when he started doing his cruising again. And then he really had no no person to stop him because he could come and go as he pleased and bring people to his house as he pleased. So was he actually murdering people while he was married to this lady? I believe he was, yes. Okay. He, uh, he, uh, and he, he even was so, um, callous and I guess just, um, 
I don't know what word I'm looking for, but he was so cocky that he would have these yearly barbecue parties, Fourth of July parties at his house. And one of the most disturbing things is uh, one of these barbecue grills that he had set up, the pit set up. He had actually buried one of his victims underneath the barbecue pit that he used to entertain these wow. folks with at these parties. Wow. That's um, that's gutsy. That's really gutsy. Yeah. Jeez. So what you're visiting him, and he says to you that, you know, you don't know a whole lot of the story. You, you Basically, you only have one side. What were some of the things that he was throwing at you trying to change your mind as to, you know, the fact that he's not the person who did it or that, you know, the media has it wrong kind of thing? First of all, he would, he would, uh, he talked about the other employees. Like I mentioned previously, he says there were so many people working for me that, uh, they were accomplices and I was actually the guinea pig in a sense, or I was the, the, the uh, fall guy. They're the ones who killed. And then he tried to bring in an association with, um, the Dean Coral case and Elmer Wayne Henley in Houston, Texas. It was a very similar case in the early 1970s. And then he said that, you know, these guys were involved with NAMBLA and I don't know if you're familiar with what NAMBLA is. Um, but no, it's, not. uh, do you want me to say what it is? Yeah, go ahead. It's the North American Man Boy Love Association. Okay. And uh, he said that they were involved in that, and he was just the, the fall guy. You know, there was all these guys that were ordering these boys, and uh, he was the one that ended up. He was a nice guy, and you know, they took advantage of him and things like that. And then another thing that he would say was that uh, he couldn't be responsible because. Uh, he lived at 8213 Somerdale Drive and that uh, at his location, he wasn't the only one who had keys to the residence. He said there were like 12 keys that were out. Uh, and so, you know, some of these other people could be uh, responsible for it. And he even did a checklist of the people that lived there. And he would put beside them whether they were trustworthy or not. It's, it's I hate to say comical, but it was it was that sort of stuff that he would put out. Uh, and then, you know, he just, he would just go to all kinds of things saying that he wasn't there when these things happened. He didn't have any idea of who these people were. There was not a whole lot of information based that he had that was proof that he actually was not responsible. He said that it was, uh, what he used to call it was state's fantasy theory is what he used to say. They knowingly knew that I was innocent and this is all state's fantasy theory just to convict an innocent man. Wow. So he was really just pushing the blame game on everybody else that he could. Uh, yes, that's what he did. He he always thought everybody else was responsible. Uh, he he never really would own up to anything. He would he would sort of mention it and then sort of back away from it, like he knew about a, a crime. Uh, he he did that one time. He did actually admit to to me the killing the first young man that he picked up uh, after he got out of prison, and he said that uh, he picked a young man up. They went back to his house to party and to do their thing. And that morning, uh, he woke up and the guy was coming towards him with a knife. And he said, what I did was I got into a fight with him because I thought he was going to stab me. And I rested Ray and I ended up stabbing him in the chest. And then I panicked. And I said, why didn't you call the cops? You're telling me that you think it's self-defense. He goes, no, no, they wouldn't believe that. I just got out of, the, you know, I just got out of prison for that thing in Iowa. So they weren't going to believe me. He said, so the only thing I did was bury him. And I just, I never could agree with that. And I said, you should have called the police if you're saying that's self-defense. And then he said, well, you know, the really bad thing about it is once I got through, uh, you know, after I killed him, I got up and went in the, the kitchen, and I realized that he had the knife, and he was cutting bacon or something. 
he was actually fixing me breakfast. Oh my gosh. And then he did admit to saying that he was aware of, uh, uh, the last victim, uh, but he tried to blame one of the guys that worked for him. He says, I knew that, that he was dead. He actually told me that the day that the night that the, 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 the detective came to his house, he said the young boy was there. He said he was already dead. Uh, he said, had he had a search warrant, he would have found it then. And then he just sort of skipped around. He would hit on bits and pieces all the time. And the unfortunate thing was that because he was, uh, when he was alive, I had a very difficult time of getting hold of his confession statement that he gave the police department. I don't know if it was regard to the, uh, the appeal process because when he was, you know, on death row, he obviously had appeals and I had to wait actually until he was executed. I had to go through the freedom of information act to get a copy of his confession statement that he gave the police officers at the time. That's, that's intense, man. And, and you, you said you were going into uh criminal justice, right? Right. Yes. Is that what you do today? Are you some kind of lawyer or something like that? Or no, I'm not a lawyer. I'm actually a, uh, <laughs> I'm a juvenile probation officer and I've been one for over 20 years. Okay. So you obviously have looked into the serial aspect side of things, at least with uh, Gacy. Uh, and I, one thing and I want to ask you, you may not you know, know, but have you ever wondered why there are so many serial killers from like the later half of the 1900s to present time? Like, it seems like it really picked up the later half of the 1900s. You ever wonder why that is? Uh, well, I can tell you this. I actually, I've, I've been teaching a serial homicide course for about the last 17, 18 years. I do it at the uh, college here in town. And uh, that's a question that always comes up because generally when I teach the class, my classes are always full. Um, uh, there's really no true answer for that. But during the 70s and 80s, there was sort of like a serial killer explosion. Uh, and it was like, especially on the West Coast in California, Texas, and in Florida, it seemed just there was like this just unbelievable amount of serial killers that were being arrested and being caught. Uh, and especially in California, uh, you know, there's they, just every time you turn on the TV or you pick up the paper, there was always something going on, something happening. And a lot of it would probably be based on the, the typologies that you have of the serial murders. There's really no true definite answer as to why people are killing. Uh, that's why people always say, is there a threat, theoretical basis? And there's not really a, a real theoretical basis when it comes to serial murder because you can, you can, you know, you can apply a, a theory to how you want it to work out in a sense. Uh, but, um, I, that, that's a good question. And I don't have the answer for it. It's just like some people, and I hate to say, it seems like some people are born evil, but man, I tell you, after meeting him, Casey, I, I'm not so sure. And I always ask that question to my students. I was like, do you believe that someone can be born evil or born, be born bad? And as the years go by, there are more and more students that raise their hand that say yes. You know, I wonder, like, if there was some kind of, like, cultural shift that happened around that time that started producing a different mindset of in people. I mean, if you're talking about a lot of these things happening in the 1970s, uh, I'm assuming these guys were in the range of their you know, probably 20s to 40s, 50s. I mean, that's a that's a lo- that's a wide range of ages for a cultural shift to impact people on such a psychological level. It, it's hard to put a finger on something that could have done that. You know what I mean? 
right? Is it nature versus nurture? Uh, what happened to them in their childhood? And I don't think childhood does play a lot into it. Is it the McDonald's triad, you know, the pyromania, bedwetting, cruelty to animals? You know, they say that all serial killers have at least one aspect of that. There's so many different things. Is it the, the environment? Um, what caused them to snap? You, you know, we, we just don't know. I think there's no real true answer. And I think that's why you have so many people researching this topic. Um, but the thing about it is they need to realize that when you start researching this topic, this stuff is, is, uh, is bad stuff. You know, um, there's, there's so many of them out there, uh, that have been arrested that we know about. Uh, the scary thing is how many of them are out there that we don't know about, you know? And I just read an article the other day where a guy that was a team killer in Southern California arrested around the same time as Gacy. Um, I think he just completed his 37th or 38th year on death row. So, you know, the ones that are going to prison and put on death row aren't even being executed. It's just one of those things where, um, you know, they're still there. And I've seen recently where they now think that there's another one in Florida now, a new serial killer. Really? I didn't hear about that one. Yeah, they said that uh, it was last week or the week before last that um, there's this one area in Florida where there are um, a few people who are uh, a rash number of suicides. And they said they started investigating because they don't think it is actually suicides. They actually think that there's a killer behind it. Uh, I guess it's one of those things where you're never going to be able to really cure society or uh, the world of these kind of problems as long as there's, you know, the human aspect of things. I mean, people, human beings do just crazy things. I mean, you look at these serial killers and they range from, you know, five people to 300 plus people, you know, and I was, um, I was actually listening to some interviews, or I forget what it was, maybe it was a podcast about the happy face killer. And, uh, it was it was about his daughter though. His daughter was do I think it was a podcast. She was doing some kind of investigative journalism where she was, you right. know, talking to people about that, you know, maybe the the victims uh children, you know, they're talking and things. And one of the things that she was worried about is that if there was some kind of genetic thing that got passed on to her that she would have the ability to do what her dad did and it scared her a lot. And they went and uh they they went and visited some kind of like psychologist. He wasn't a psychologist, so I forget the details of it. But this guy was like a doctor that really knew how to read brain scans and things like that. And it turns out the the doctor himself has traits of uh, I guess um, I, I don't know if the term is to is a uh, a psychopath, but there there was a term they were using that the doctor himself had, which serial killers have as well but the doctor said that there's a threshold and he just comes up just to that threshold without crossing over that line that he's not really a danger to society he'll do things like uh without even knowing it he'll put like his children in harm's way just not even really thinking about just like like his kid will be walking by and he'll be goofing around just push him a little too hard and the kid almost falls down the stairs kind of thing uh he's not really thinking about it but he has that little switch in his head and um they did a test on her and she came back clean and everything but hearing that i I was thinking, man, so there are, you know, maybe some things in people's brains that if they have too much of, it pushes them over the edge to be able to maybe do things like this. Yeah, it's a sociopathic behavior. It's sort of like there's a checklist of it, you know, like superficial glibness and charm. And that's what I, uh, you know, I, I give a handout to my students every semester. And it's that 
Cleckley checklist. And I was like, you know, when you look at this checklist, how many of you people in here, how many of you kids in here can identify with some of these these uh, points? Or I ask them a question. It's like, how many of you are in a relationship now with someone who has several of these points? And it's like you said, it's just, do you go to the edge and do you make that next step like that doctor said? You know, that's the thing about it. There's the everyone who keeps in line, and then there's those that sort of go past the lines and break the norms and fall into that other classification. Yeah, it's it's. I do find this stuff fascinating, and I I personally wouldn't mind doing a podcast about this stuff. But the thing is, there's just so many true crime podcasts out there. I don't feel like dipping my toes into that water right now. <laughs> but if I if there I are a lot. yeah, there are. I mean, and. and if I did it though, I'd probably do some similar format to this show where I'd have to be talking to somebody like yourself that you know knows about the situation, maybe somebody that was connected to it or something like that that had a chance to speak with the person extensively, just to have a different aspect of how we go about the every episode, you know. Uh, but right. I, I appreciate you sharing all that, and and that's not the only reason why you're here. To, I wanted you to kind of give a background as to the whole thing because. Um, he winds up getting executed and right. that's not the end of the story for you and him though. No, sir. Um, and now the chill bumps of study and <laughs> I know it's coming. Um, I, I lived, um, I lived in Tuscaloosa at the time after he was executed. And, uh, I remember watching and I, uh, you know, it was one of those big things back then, whenever there was a big notoriety or a notorious criminal being, execute or something happened, you know, that there was full coverage, you know, whether it was CNN or something like that, they were playing it all night long. And I remember watching that that night. And, um, I remember actually one of my professors at the time calling and say, Hey, everything. Okay. I was like, yeah, everything's fine. Because he had known that I had invested a lot of time in, in working on this, uh, because that's what I was going to do my thesis on. And, um, you know, life went on as usual. And I guess probably a month, month and a half afterwards, I'm, uh, I hadn't thought about the guy, you know, it was done. I just had to finish working on my thesis and, you know, complete the, the requirements of getting my graduate degree. And, um, I'm, you know, in my apartment and, uh, I get woken up one night and it's probably about two or three in the morning. And it always seems to me that things always happen to me around two or three. I don't know what it is, but it's some, some sort of thing in my mind or what, uh, but I raised right up out of bed and I'm looking in my small apartment and over in the corner sitting in the corner is John Gacy and he's looking at me and he is snarling and snorting and just heavy breathing and look at me. And, you know, I, at the time it was just so vivid. Um, it, it, from what I remember, it looked like his skin was sort of a bluish kind of color, but he was just sitting there snarling and he wouldn't say anything, just snarling and his lips were out and his nose was flaring. And I just look at him and it seemed like it was probably, you know, a couple minutes. It was probably only like 30 seconds. And I look at him and look at him and we're just having to stare back and forth. And then I say, John, and I close my eyes and was like, God help me. And I open my eyes, and he's gone. And needless to say, after that, I turned the lights on, and I think I slept with the lights on that night. Um, but it was one of those things that uh, was so lifelike, 
And I, I literally woke up. I thought it was a dream, but I woke up and I see whatever this is in the corner. And it seemed like now that I think about it, it was, that was not the end of it. Because even after that, and even after, you know, defending my thesis and moving on, um, I'd actually uh, got accepted into a doctoral program in Pennsylvania. And I went up there uh, to work on a PhD in criminology. And it seemed like after that had happened and once I moved on, nothing would fit into place. Um, I went up there with the understanding that I was going to get an assistantship. I got up there. They didn't have one for me. Uh, things would happen in class that were just sort of odd. Uh, I had professors that would lose my research papers. Uh, I'm talking about, you know, 15, 60-page papers that I worked on. Jeez. They'd just be lost. Uh, and it was just like I couldn't, I couldn't identify with the other peers that I was with. Um, it was like some of them would make fun of me the way that I spoke, my, I guess my accent. And it was just like I, I wasn't connecting or belonging to anything. And then after that, I moved back to Alabama and I started uh, doing an internship. Well, not an internship. I was doing a case study ship at a place where I'd worked before, uh, which eventually became my full-time employment. And uh, at first it was a little bumpy and rough. And then I had uh, found a place closer to work, and I moved into this house, which was a old, this was an old house that used to be a full, you know, upstairs, downstairs house. And what they did is they changed it into four big apartments. And uh, once I moved to that apartment, it felt like that something was attached to that apartment. I don't know if it was John. I don't know what it was. But literally, I lived in that apartment, and the entire time that I lived in that apartment, I got sick. I'd had uh, all kinds of things, ended up having kidney stones. I remember in the winter that I would turn the heat up to 75, 80 degrees, and it would be going full blast. And the only uh, room that would be warm would be my bedroom. Everything else would be ice cold. I remember laying in bed at night and feel like something was pushing on me. And it got to the point where I actually grabbed my Bible and I started sleeping with my Bible on my chest. Uh, and then it wasn't just that in the wintertime. I remember, um, you know, get home from work and, uh, I'd eat a sandwich and some chips or something like that. And if I wouldn't finish the sandwich, I would just throw it away in the trash. And I remember coming home the next day and this happened on two or three occasions when I came home and this is winter. And, you know, you heard me say that the other rooms were ice gold. Uh, I would, uh, look in the trash can and there would be maggots crawling in the trash can from that sandwich that I threw away. That's like, how is this possible? It's coded. It's where a fly is coming from. And it just seemed like there was this sort of like bond or whatever that was just following me around. Um, and that's when I think my mom, in a sense, started praying for me and I started doing everything that I can and uh, eventually got out of that environment, uh, met a, a nice young lady who eventually became my wife. And then after that happened, it was almost like it all stopped. And it hasn't been since then. That's interesting. That's really interesting. Um, you know, I there's so many different ways I want to go about talking to you about this because I have initial thoughts and 
and I know a little bit of the things about you as far as, you know, I like, for instance, uh, when we first started talking before we started the interview, you had said that you just come home from church. So let me just start there. Uh, I'm assuming, you know, you being a Southern guy or, you know, now a Southern guy, um, you're, you're coming home from church. Uh, I'm assuming you're a Christian. What do your theological standpoints how do they play into your your real life experiences? Are, do they is there a conflict with what you've experienced to what you feel like you should believe? I think that uh, I grew up. Uh, let me let me give you a little bit more background. Growing up in Missouri, I grew up in a Pentecostal church. If that will tell you anything, yeah. So uh, I grew up, you know, sort of seeing things that maybe other people hadn't seen growing up, you know, or seeing you know some odd things. Not snake handling or none of that kind of stuff, uh, but um, you know, I've always believed in God. I've sometimes strayed away and realized that. Uh, I've had parents that were praying for me and other people praying for me, and um, I believe that um, when I when I got in this whole field, I wanted to do something that would be able to help people. And uh, I've always, you know, known that. Um, Maybe whenever I was doing that stuff, interviewing stuff, uh, maybe there would have been some conflict. And I think that that's why I tried to stay prayed up. Or my mom, I know, especially prayed for me because of that, the individual I was going to see. Uh, But I always thought that there was a need to understand the process of of these kind of people so I could educate others about it. You know, um, my faith has always been strong. Um, I've... um, I really think that um, over the course of that time and during that whole process that the good Lord was just watching over me and protecting me because uh, after, after you've been exposed to that, like I said, you know, it got to the point where I've become desensitized to everything and it, it brings on depression and everything else. And had it not been for the good Lord and my faith, I think that, you know, something could have happened. Something could have went the other way. And I'm just thankful that, that that I have God and I have people that care about me and love me and were praying for me, because if I didn't have that, who, who's to know, you know, what could happen? Yeah, and, you know, okay, so you have this experience, and uh, le- just let me ask you, do you think that when you opened your eyes and you saw John sitting there uh, with a grimace on his face, do you think that that was actually John? Or do you think that that was um, some kind of energy, or do you think that that was a demon, or or what are your thoughts? Like, it just you know, you're. I mean, you've had time to think about it. What do you think that was in your room that night? Uh, I've always believed in demons and stuff like that, and that's probably what it was. There was something that was related to some sort of demon presence. I believe that um, just because of. Uh, there are certain, you know, uh, I'm, I, I watch horror movies, but there are certain horror movies that I don't watch to this day, like The Exorcist, stuff like that, just because of that stuff. And I believe in that stuff. And I, and I truly believe that that was some sort of entity in that room. All right. So do you think that maybe that was an entity that was connected to him at one time? And maybe the entity that was, I don't know, causing him to do these things? Do you think that, you know, he had a demonic presence in his life that was influencing him to do these murders? It may have been the latter. I do think that that was connected to him because I, I don't know why it, why it would have taken the form of him. Do you know what I'm saying? I, I, I 
think that there was some sort of connection because uh, it was Tony was just so vivid. It was John sitting in the corner of my house, and it was like I said, the snarling and the heavy breathing. Um, it, it was him, and I guess it was in a demonic form. And uh, I, I don't know. That's that's something that's always bothered me. And I've asked people. You know, I mentioned to you in our email that uh, I even asked somebody who was, you know, done dreams and stuff like that because I was desperate. I, I had no idea. And he could provide me with an answer. And, and I don't know. I just know that that was, uh, that night was it's something I'm never going to forget. I know that. Right. And it's interesting that you've had so much activity pick up after that experience. Did you, do you recall ever having any kind of paranormal type experiences before that happened? Nothing that I can recall. You know, um, I will say that, um, there was one time, and I don't know if you'd call this paranormal or not, um, after the execution, I had uh, taken a trip to Los Angeles, and I was in a shop, and uh, as soon as I went in the shop, I became, I, I thought I was going to vomit and ill, and I walked in, and I was with a friend of mine who was from Boston, I said, I got to get out of here, and he said, what's wrong? I said, I don't know, but I said, I can't stay in the shop. And as soon as I went out, it was like everything was lifted off me and I felt perfectly fine. And uh, I've asked people that. I was like, do you think that there's such a thing as something, some place being evil? And I said, because I really believe that I experienced that when I was in California. But other than anything else, like with what I've seen with John that night, no, I've never experienced anything else. Yeah, there's a lot of different levels to these types of things. Uh, I, I think, personally, I believe that um, any place can be uh, haunted with evil. Um, I don't think like my cell phone is evil in itself, you know, mm-hmm. but I do think that, you know, things can become possessed, uh, and therefore become evil. Um, but with this whole John situation, it, I don't, I don't have, you know, definitive answers or anything, but I, I do find it interesting that you have this experience and how long, how long was it after he was executed that this happened? It was a, a month and a half, two a month months. Half. It wasn't that long okay. afterwards. So it wasn't that long after. And so let me just draw this out. And this is just something that, you know, there's no proof behind it. But um, you visited him for two years and right. he gets to know you, you get to know him. There's obviously a comfort level that develops there to the point that you started feeling like, you know, like your mom said, uh, what was it? Trash in, trash out. Uh, yeah, garbage in, garbage out. Yeah. So, um, I wonder if John at some point became more attached to you than you realized in the moment. Um, and there's, there's a little bit of things that make me question that. Like for instance, the day he's executed, he asked you if you would come and be there. Uh, that's usually something for loved ones. That's usually something for family members, people that uh, cared about that person. That person cared about them for closure. And he asked you to be there and you denied him that. And I wonder if now they, they have people that show up to, to watch their loved one, you know, be executed for closure. I wonder if there's a reverse to that where he didn't have closure because you didn't show up when he asked you to. And maybe there was an attraction there to you, um, that he didn't, that, that you, 
obviously didn't feel the same about, but there was an attraction there that he wanted to have closure when he's executed with you there, and he didn't have that. And if if he starts haunting you, and those hauntings just kind of keep going until when you get married, and once you mm-hmm. got married, it's like that door is closed. It's like you know, uh, I don't know. It's like it's like him sa- him saying, "Okay, well, you know, you're off the market," or uh, you know, something something weird. I know it's weird to think of, but I mean, he was you know a serial killer, and he he killed all boys all young men he was he was practicing a homosexual lifestyle and i just wonder if he was if he was attracted to you in a way that you didn't realize at the time you know i don't know there was a young man another young man that visited him who actually uh wrote a book about him and the young man is deceased uh which is really odd because uh not the process in which he's deceased the young man took his own life and uh i knew that john was very close to this young man and I've always wondered had that attachment to that young man caused that man to end up committing suicide. Uh, and uh, but I, I've never looked at it that way in my my situation. But you never know. Um, like I said, yeah, he asked me. I said, John, I, I have no. I said that doesn't interest me. I have no desire to see them kill you. I, I didn't. You know, I I don't think I could see that with anybody. You know, if someone asked me that, I, I just couldn't do that. Uh, but but I don't know, Tony. It's one of those things that I've always wondered and questioned. And um, why did that happen to me? And why was it so vivid that night? Because it wasn't something that I had, you know, asked for or wanted to happen. It just it was there, and it was out of the blue. Yeah, it's I I just find it very interesting. And there's really, I mean, no rhyme or reason as to, you know, why it happened. Uh, We can just sit here and theorize and and things like that. But, um, you know, I think it is good. You might have actually saved your own life by putting separation between you and him when you started noticing the changes in you, you know, because if that other person killed themselves, I mean, who knows if, you know, if you would have just kept on continuing with the relationship, if there would have been a deeper impact than there already was. You, you never know. I think it was a lot of people praying for me and my belief in God. Um, now, I, I will say something else, and um, I don't know how much of this you want to edit or what or include it, you know, or how are you going to do this. But uh, before I finished, I'm, I'm sorry, I forgot to tell you this. Before I finished um, writing my thesis, I had to interview um, a couple other people. And like I said, this may be edited because I don't know how what the liability issue is on this as far as me saying this, but it was a family member of his, and uh, I interviewed that person uh, for a day, and uh, when I was sitting at their kitchen table talking to them and asking them questions and going through the process, the person kept looking away from me, and you know when they would answer the questions, and that person was looking into another room. I was in the kitchen and they kept looking into the living room. It was just the the way their house was set up. And I, I couldn't figure it out. And I was like, you know how some people, when you ask them questions, some people don't feel comfortable asking questions. They look away or, you know, they just, they don't want to answer it or they go and look you in the eye. And after we got done that day, whenever I got up and was walking out, I looked to where I thought that person was looking and it was on the in in their front room, and it was on a fireplace. And on the fireplace, there was like what looked like to be this urn. And you know, I can speculate who I think was in that urn or what that urn was, but who knows? But 
Yeah. I've always wondered had that was that his cremains in that urn. And when when that interview happened, that happened before or after your his appearance in your in your room. That happened. It had to be. It was after. Okay. I don't know, man. I don't know, but uh, James, I'll tell you what, man. I appreciate you sharing the story on the show. That's for sure. I've always wondered. I just wish somebody could, you know, give me some answers, and hopefully, you know, I, I think that that part of my life is done. But you know, it's one of those things where you always wonder what, what, what caused this? Did I do something wrong, or did something happen that caused that? Yeah. Well, I don't think you did anything wrong. I think a lot of times people have these paranormal experiences, and they're not asking for them; they just happen. Uh, and you know. It, there's a whole other side of this world and reality that we're we're not accustomed to. We don't understand, and things happen that we we have no rhyme or reason to. They just happen, and uh, you know your situation. I don't think you were asking for anything. I think that there was some kind of obvious connection between you and him from spending so much time together in his last days of life that uh, carried over after he died. And I don't know if that means it was him or if it was a demonic presence that was attached to him and uh, therefore some way attached to you. I don't know. But I do know that this world has a lot more to offer than what our eyes see. And uh, I think the more we acknowledge that and and try to comprehend the reality of that, I think the more comfortable and things will start falling into place where we may not have, have answers, but we'll at least be able to accept the fact that things happen without ha- knowing, you know, why they right. happened. Right. Well, let me ask you one question, Tom, if you don't mind. Yeah, go ahead. And, you know, I know I, I love your podcast. I know you cover a lot of stuff and I listen intently to them because of some of the things and I, you know, try to find a connection to what happened with me. But, um, do you think somehow or, is there any correlation or, or you know, I, I'm just fishing maybe, but why are, I, I find it odd in my life with this whole process that I, I mentioned to you earlier, I remember when this happened, like when I was eight or nine years old in 1978, sitting in front of the TV with my dad. And then I just find it odd so many years later that I'm actually sitting across from this man interviewing him. And I, I just, I guess I've always questioned how that happened or why did that happen? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Well, do you think that that, when you were a kid and you saw that unfolding on TV, do you think that kind of sparked a, an interest in the direction of your life that it took? I don't know. I think I was too young. I think I was more worried about playing baseball and things like that, you know, <laughs> at that time. Yeah. I mean, I know that, uh, and this is, you know, here's, here's some story time with Tony. Uh, but I know when I was a kid, and I don't remember how old I was, I think I was probably around, around that age, eight, nine, 10 years old, probably no, no more than 10. Um, I lived in a trailer park, very, very large trailer park out in the middle of nowhere, very bad neighborhood. And, um, we as kids thought it would be a good idea one day to shoot some people's windows out with BB guns. And, uh, we, we didn't know, I didn't know at least that there was somebody actually living in the trailer. I thought it was abandoned. And so we were shooting the windows out and, um, the person either came home or something happened and the owner found out and called the police. The police came and, uh, the police interviewed the kids across the street and they said that I was there, but I never hit the window. And the cop comes over to my house and sits me down and talks with me. And he says, and I remember this vividly. He says, 
you know, they said that you shot the BB gun, but you never actually hit the window. Is that true? And I said, oh, no, I actually hit the window. I hit the window. And I was like bragging about it. I was like, no, man, I, I, like the kids across the street knew, knew that out of all our parents, my parents would come down hardest on me. And so uh, they were trying to save my butt. But I was like, no, I hit the window, man. And, but the whole process of sitting down and talking to that police officer uh, sparked an interest in me in law enforcement. And I, into my twenties, I almost went into law enforcement. I, I dabbled with it here and there, um, but I actually was really strongly considering going to the police academy. And my ultimate goal was to do uh, U.S. Marshal Services. I really was strongly considering that into my, you know, twenty three, twenty four years old. And so um, I know for me as a kid, something that happened then influenced the interests of my life and i just wonder if it's a similar situation with what you know you went through it, it may you know whenever i went to um i, I think you're in pennsylvania aren't you yeah just outside of philly okay I, I went to iup indiana university in pennsylvania for yep. a while and uh that's when i was working on my phd and when i was up there uh the, the some of my cohorts always wanted me to talk about it uh about my experiences but you know, after a while, it almost seems like it becomes a novelty, and you know, you don't want to talk about it. Of course, I talk about this stuff now because I teach classes uh, part time, but I, I don't know if that was also a way just to keep keep it alive in my head. I don't know, you know, because I, I that's usually not a point of conversation uh, bringing that topic up. You know what I'm saying? It's just something yeah. that you don't talk about. Uh, but I don't know. I, I don't know what you told me. It, it, that's you know, I'm willing to listen to anything in that right there. Maybe something that I never even thought about what you said with it, him. Yeah, I mean, it, you, you never know. And I mean, I, I mean, let's just be honest. I'm, I'm just a podcaster and I drive truck full time. So, I mean, take yeah. what I say with a, with a grain of salt. But uh, I mean, I, I do hear a lot of people's stories. And uh, I noticed that over the last couple of years, I've gotten um, good at taking things and observing and thinking things outside the box. And I try to do that. I've been trying to do that for, I, I'd say, probably close to 10 years now, especially with the political realm and things like that. And I've taken the, those same concepts of trying to not allow um, the mainstream media to brainwash me as far as what to think and to think outside the box. And I took that practice to this show. And so when people are telling me you know, what, what they think and how they view their story, uh, but then they have questions at the end of it, sometimes I'm able to, you know, from a third person perspective, kind of view things a little differently um but it doesn't mean it's factual you know that's my disclaimer don't sue me <laughs> no no don't worry i i'm just I've, I've always wondered you know and uh you, you never know and you know i've i've prayed about it i've talked to people that I thought knew and no one's ever been able to say anything but you know i'm i'm, I'm willing to listen i just you know it's it's i don't know man <laughs> Well, I'll tell you what, man, I do appreciate talking to you. And, uh, you know, I have a feeling that this is probably the end of your story as far as paranormal stuff goes, because, uh, you know, it, it seems like it was a very contained time in your life. But uh, I do appreciate you sharing it. Oh, man, no problem. I'm glad to, to talk with you about it. Well, that's the show, everybody. I really hope you enjoyed it. And if you did enjoy it, there are three things you could do to help support the show. One, go to iTunes and leave a five-star rating or review. Two, go to patreon.com forward slash the confessionals to sign up to become a patron. And three, 
go ahead and share a link to this show that you're listening to right now. That will help me out a great deal as well. And if you haven't done so already, please go to YouTube and hit subscribe to the new YouTube channel. And also go to the website, theconfessionalspodcast.com and look up at the menu bar and you'll see a section called newsletter. Go ahead and subscribe to the newsletter. It's free and it is awesome because you actually get updates on a monthly basis of what's going on with the confessionals. Until next week, friends, stay safe, take care, and remember, the truth will set you free, but first it will piss you off. Bye.